Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Good morning. Have you encountered any distractions recently? I think that the Christian life is a fight to linger in the daily delight of the love of God and that our number one priority and responsibility is to keep our heart filled with the fullness of the joyful presence of God's love. The title of my sermon today, simply two words, linger there, linger there, and I want to speak about protecting the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, of setting our affections on Jesus Christ. And I'm going to preach from a verse from the Song of Solomon, but first I want to set up and support that verse by looking at six or seven Scripture passages found in the New Testament that support this wonderful verse in the Song of Solomon. The first is I want to draw your attention to some words of Jesus. Jesus said a couple things that are very important for us to catch today. The first is found in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 9. And I encourage you, by the way, to write these verses down. And secondly, I encourage you to use your Bibles. And, uh, and it's so good to hear the turning of the, the pages today. And we have tables at the back with some Bibles on them. So if you didn't bring your Bible, you left it home, you forgot it, or if you even don't have one, we encourage you to step back right now and uh, go get one of those Bibles. And they're yours for the keeping if you don't own a Bible. We want to make sure that you have a Bible to read and that you have one today. So uh, John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. We're going to talk today about making sure we abide in his love. For Jesus urged us, encouraged us, commanded us to abide in the love that he has for us. The second thing that Jesus said in this regard is in John 17, verse 26, I made known to them your name. He's praying to the Father, and he says to the Father, Lord, I made known to them your name. I revealed to them your name. I I showed them what you're like, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And then there's this verse in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. It's the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesian Christians. It's maybe the greatest prayer In all of the Bible, it's a prayer that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and the inner man by faith and be able to comprehend the length and the breadth, the height and the depth of the love of God. And then he says this in verse 19, so that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that's beyond comprehension. You can't put it in words that a love that surpasses knowledge so that you might be filled with all of this fullness of God. And then the fourth verse is a word from Jude, the brother of Jesus, verse 21, 
that says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, it's one of the letters to the seven churches of Asia where the Spirit of God says that you have left your first love. And so we can all suffer the possibility, this peril of losing our first love and how tra- the tragedy of that, of not having kept ourselves in the love of God, of not abiding in the love of God, of having left or walked away from or been distracted from this passion of first love. And so all these verses add up to say that we must fight to keep our heart full of the love of God. And then the final verse is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 and 3, where Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband so that I would be able to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then 1 John 3, 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. This verse has meant a lot to me over my life. It's kind of set the pace and the direction and defined the theology of my Christian experience that if we abide in him, we have victory over sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So the ability to, to live a, a sin-free life is dependent upon how well we're abiding, isn't it? So I feel compelled this morning to sound a warning about distractions. The enemy is cunning to get our soul distracted and move us into a state of lukewarmness by the distractions and the diversions of this world. And so it is this concern that is eloquently expressed way back in the Old Testament in this Song of Solomon. And I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to page number 560, the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1, and we'll end up at verse 7, so you can get the flow of thought here. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, as a lily... Among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the doves of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Everybody said amen to the word of God, eh? right? <laughs> At our men's retreat this weekend down in the Kenai, I told some of the men I was going to be preaching from the Song of Solomon. They said, well, should we dismiss our kids before, we, uh, before you start there? So what is the Song of Solomon about? Why the, these verses? Why verse 7? What is its message and why was it written and why is it included in the 39 books of the canon of the Old Testament and why did those ancients decide that it was worthy of being included in the 39 books of the canon of the Old Testament? It's a very good question. 
In order to understand the Song of Solomon, it's best understood in contrast to the other book that Solomon wrote, wrote, the book that precedes it, the book of Ecclesiastes. And you remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is where we get the phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. It's a very interesting book. Um, And uh, it, it describes the vanity or the emptiness, the empty pursuit of setting our affections on created things. The Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, uh, in contrast to that, though, describes then the all-sufficient joy of discovering God as the great lover of our soul who is worthy of setting our affections upon Him, the love of our beloved God in heaven, our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus. Ecclesiastes talks about how the world, you can search the world around, go everywhere around the world, throughout the vast expanse of the universe, and find and locate all of those wonderful treasures of wisdom and of riches and pleasures, and think, oh, in the accumulation or the experience of all of the pleasures of the world, that then I will find that great source to satisfy my soul. But Solomon says, In Ecclesiastes, no, that is a bubble burst. That is an empty pursuit in the end. All is vanity, yes, vanity of vanities. And so it ends with this question. There must be something else out there. I must be created for something else besides the pleasures of this world, the treasures of this universe. And so he, he wrote the Song of Solomon. It's a... an allegory of a a love story, a word picture of of God's love for humankind. And it it answers this question. It says, yes, there is an object to set uh, all your affections upon. It's not the object of creation. It's the Creator Himself who designed it all, who, who imagined it all, who came up with the idea in the first place. And He is the one whom you should worship and the one who you should set your affections upon. He is the one that will satisfy your heart above all things. And the summary of the contrast between Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon is summarized in a verse that Jesus gave to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You remember what he said to her? He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Well, that's the message of Ecclesiastes, right? By drinking the the fountain of the the things of this world may have a temporary joy, but in the end, it's not completely satisfying. But then Jesus says to this woman at the well, but whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That's the Song of Solomon. Jesus said in another place, what shall it profit a person if they gain the whole world, but lose their soul, lose, lose the idea that you, we were created in hard, we, we have this hardwired design in our soul to worship the Creator and not set the affections of our soul upon the things of this world. So the Song of Solomons is a book that says that God's love is better than all of the riches, all of the treasures of this world. Set your affections on things above where Christ is seated with the Father in heaven. 
And so this book, the Song of Solomons, is actually an allegory that is full of the message of Jesus. But it is Jesus in a very unique way, a very particular character, a very distinctive mode. He is not seen here as our savior or as our king or as our high priest or as our judge or as a prophet or the captain of our salvation or the great shepherd of the sheep or the mighty God or the king of kings or our security of our salvation. No, he is here in a very unique sense, a very nearer dearer and closer relation than any of these other images of God. He is seen here, Jesus, as our bridegroom, as the lover of our soul, the one who is wooing us into relationship and the one who intimately wants to sing over us and treasure us and enjoy us every moment of the day. So the Song of Solomon is to be understood as the this mutual interchange of the affections of the bridegroom with the bride. And this is our great privilege, friends, this morning. Jesus settled the relationship. Jesus on the cross died for our sins so that we can come into the presence of the Father. And the point of the relationship is to enjoy the relationship. It's to live in the pleasure and the benefits of His grace. And this is our privilege, our purchase privilege. It is ours by virtue of having a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And it's the grand aim of the Bible, the entire Bible, to to show us and bring us into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so, the Song of Solomon is a collection of love poems that's exchanged between a man who is both the king and the shepherd, and a woman who is described here as a Shulamite bride. And the poems divide throughout these seven chapters, and isn't it interesting that there are seven chapters in this love poem? Seven is a figure of perfection, and in the New Testament, this relationship with God is described as the perfecting of our love, or a perfect love. Just those kind of things are interesting to me. And the Song of Solomon can be divided into four events. First is the the courtship, and then there's the bridal possession, and then there's the the wedding itself, and then there's the living out of the, the life of love. A very interesting allegory. And historically, the Song of Solomon has been interpreted as this word picture of Christ's love for his bride, the Messiah who's going to come to to wed himself with his people on earth, with the church. And in recent years, it's been um, interpreted as often as the celebration of monogamous love, which is certainly a message that we need to hear in our day of promiscuity and redefinition of marriage that we're having today and song of solomon is saying no there's no other love more satisfying the love than the love of one uh, one man with one woman and there's no other love relationship out there that that was that god designed or intended that is more perfect and more fulfilling than monogamous love and that's certainly a message of the book of Solomon, that's the assumption of the book of Solomon, and yet the ultimate message is that saying that says that this picture of monogamous love is a picture of God's love for his people. 
And I urge you to see to see even in the, the book of Solomon a deeper message than a marriage manual for couples in living in monogamous love. But see in it the depth of the message that God has in his love for you and for me. It's kind of like if you want to um, compare it to how Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Well, we could we could miss the whole message of the meaning when he says, I am the bread of life. And simply, well, I'm going to give you a discourse this morning on the nutritional value of bread. Right. On uh, on the on how the, we need some carbohydrates in our diet. We're going to talk about bread because Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, that's like focusing on the song of, Sol- song of Solomon only on being a marriage manual for couples living in monogamous love. No, that's deeper than that. It's a message that says God's love satisfies. When you set the affections of your heart upon him, that is only the true source of joy and happiness in this world. So I want to look at this passage in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, I mean chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The first, I, I want to just lay out the contextual interpretation of this verse as it stands within this context of the Song of Solomon. Here, the Shulamite bride wants to keep love's passion alive and unbroken. She is fighting to protect and guard the love in her marriage. There are a couple different explanations used uh, often for interpreting this verse. Some scholars say that it means do not excite or stir up love before marriage. Avoid promiscuity um, before marriage and save virginity until marriage. Don't give your heart away until your true love arrives. That's often a, a, a way that it is um, interpreted. But some other scholars say that it means do not disturb or offend love in its peaceful delight. Don't allow anything ever to intrude upon the passion and the purity and the perfection of your love with God. And I think the second interpretation is more consistent with the context. It's more consistent with the reason why the ancient scholars even included it in the canon because they understood it to be an allegorical message concerning the love of God for mankind through his Messiah, Jesus And the bride is describing a relationship of love that she's already enjoying. She's already a participant in. It's not something she's waiting to get around the corner, but she's already living in the enjoyment of this love, and she's not waiting for it. For example, verses 4 through 6 says, He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am, I am faint with love. I'm, I'm just dying with love. I'm, I've lost it all because I'm so much in love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. And then she says this, and this gets to the heart of what I believe God wants to say to us this morning. She gives this charge to the daughters of Jerusalem. She implores them to do something or rather not do something. She says, promise me this or I charge you. These these are the daughters of the court. You know, these are the 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 bride's attendants, the the ones who are coming in to make sure that everything's all 
um, in place and in order and all of her needs are taken care of. And she's making a charge to these daughters of Jerusalem sitting in the courtyard. She's dead serious about something. And she asks these ladies that are surrounding her to make this pledge to her. She's concerned to not lose the preciousness of this moment of love. She doesn't want this precious moment of communion with her beloved to be interrupted by some trivial intrusion. She's enjoying the king's embrace. And she doesn't want him to be interrupted or awakened from what he intends to say and how he intends to pour out his love upon her. And so she asked the daughters of Jerusalem to swear an oath that they will not intrude and that they will not disturb the love of her beloved. And so here's what she says. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that scholars say that the word you, in the original Hebrew anyway, scholars say if we could read Hebrew, it would be really interesting. They say that all of the verb forms in the language here are in the masculine, but the noun is feminine. He's talking about the daughters of Jerusalem, but he's using masculine verbs to describe and so scholars say this is really curious and it's like one of the only places in the hebrew text where this interchange of using masculine verbs to describe a a feminine noun the daughters of jerusalem occurs and so they're saying that what the writer solomon is trying to convey if we could understand hebrew is that these women have if if they come in and intrude making this um, unwelcome intrusion that it's not very feminine of them to do that. So their true femininity will be lost if they do this kind of thing. So these women, when, if they lose restraint, if they, they lose their modesty and they lose their meekness and they come barging in as busybodies and meddlers, that they've lost their femininity. And Watchman Nee says that these daughters of Jerusalem are are fond of these erratic moods that are given to meddling in other people's spiritual affairs. And so what this is saying here, this warning to the daughters of Jerusalem, is a a caution against interfering with the moving of the Holy Spirit. And then the next phrase in the verse says, I charge you by the gazelles and by the wild deer. Now, isn't that interesting? (laughs) Uh, there's like this um, oath by the gazelles and by the the wild deer. And, and what that's about is that if you were to pick an example of any animal, any creature in God's kingdom that was most pleasant or most timid or timorous and shy and loving to each other, it would be the gazelle and the wild deer. These are so feminine or so so perfect in their... They're, they're, they're not being like these daughters of Jerusalem who would barge in. They're just s- s- the example of a, of a pleasant-natured creature. And so he's using those as an example. I charge you by their example to not do this. So that's what he's meaning by that. So what is the concern? He says, to not awaken love. Do not disturb or offend love. 
And the word love here is in the proper noun. It means the lover. Do not disturb the lover. It means do not awaken him. Recognize his presence. Do not disturb him. Have reverence for his presence. Have high regard for the presence of God when he is very near. Do not awaken love. It's like Habakkuk said, the Lord is in his holy temple. There is a proper response to that. If we have the kind of regard and worship for God as he truly is, if we could understand him as he is and see him as he is, as Habakkuk said, the Lord is in his holy temple. He is a work he wants to accomplish. Therefore, there's only one only proper response. Let all the earth be silent before him. Don't be yappity, yappity, yap. Interruption in, you know, there's a response we should have in due recognition of the worthiness of God and the worship of God. And the bride is fearful of any possibility that her communion with her beloved would be broken. And we, friends, should be jealous of that moment of worship as we come to church. I remember when I uh, was growing up in rural, this rural church in, in rural Ontario, the old saints used to, when they'd come to church, first of all, the pastor would say, um, he'd teach us that we need to come uh, at least 15 minutes before the worship service in order to have some intentional time of prayer before the service to prepare our hearts for prayer. And I remember many of the saints would, would come to their seats and they would, before they'd ever sit down in the seat, they would kneel at their seat. Or we used to have pews in those days. And they'd kneel at their pews to, to pray before a time of worship. That's just a, a beautiful way of recognizing the importance, the sacred importance of times of worship with the Lord. And this is the spirit of this verse. The, 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 the Shulamite bride is giving this charge or this warning to the daughters of Jerusalem. Do not bring a disturbance. Do not bring this intrusion. There's a do not disturb sign over the door of the house of worship, over my soul. Do not allow anything to come in that would distract this time of worship away from my beloved. She has jealous vigilance. She's establishing boundaries in her life. She is fighting for this communion, for this marriage with her beloved. And she's going to do her utmost to protect these moments of worship and, and protecting love and protecting the presence of the enjoyment and the benefits and the delight of that love is the primary function of jealousy. And so she's conscious of the exquisite happiness of living in this kind of relationship, and she's concerned that there would be a disturbance that would be brought to ruin and soil and rob and destroy it. And she's afraid that the, the, the delight of it would be broken through. So she says, do not interfere with this. She sends out this plea to the daughters of Jerusalem. Promise me that you will not allow anything to interfere with the course of this love. So let me move secondly then to what is then the theological meaning of this verse? Gave you the, the context of how it was working itself out there in this love poem. But what's the, what's the meaning here, theologically? 
I believe it's a description of spiritual experience. It's even a description of spiritual warfare of the enemy that would want to bring distractions in our relationship with the Lord. And the Christian life is a series of visits and withdrawals of our Lord, of revivals or seasons of the moving or the wooing of the Spirit of God, of His grace upon our heart, bringing us into a deeper place of relationship with the Lord. And there are seasons in our walk with the Lord when He calls us to deepen our relationship with Him. You could probably, if you wrote a timeline journal of your own spiritual uh, walk with God, you could plot on that some, some significant moments of time where, where, where you wrestled with God, where, where God wrestled with you, and, and you made some things right with God. You settled some, some things with God, and, and, and the Holy Spirit of God brought healing to your heart. Those are prime moments when God is working with you on something, and we need to recognize those moments, treasure those moments, and not bring a distraction that would trivialize them, but rather allow the Spirit of God in His wooing and in His calling to do the work of grace that He intends to do during those moments. So, for example, when we open up in the church a time for prayer, those are special moments where God is working on someone's heart and we need to be cautious that we not uh, trivialize those moments with a lot of sound and fury, right, but rather bring prayer to bear and, 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 and covering that person with prayer and even in, 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 in cultivating uh, that moment before the Lord. That's a significant moment in someone's life that needs to be guarded. These are precious moments, and we must not let them pass without the, um, the reason or the purpose for which God has made that happen to be accomplished and the change and the transformation to happen within our hearts. And so we need to protect these precious moments of love and not let them become broken by trivial intrusions. You know, I, I was thinking, I, what my mind is thinking about right now is that this past week, my daughter sent me a text, I think it was on Wednesday and Wednesday morning. She said, Dad, could you please pray for Morgan? That was Angela's husband. Uh, Morgan is a pastor in, in Washington State, my son-in-law. He said, Morgan has been on a three-month sabbatical, and, uh, and he's going to go back to church uh, t- this week, and he wants to spend a day alone in prayer. And so he's going, he, she gave the name of the place up there near Wenatchee where he was going away, spend the whole day alone with the Lord in prayer. And she said, could you pray for Morgan that, that uh, this would be a, a good day for him? And uh, I said, yes, I will. And, and I, we had our staff meeting Wednesday morning upstairs in Pastor Brian's office. And I felt led to pray for Morgan. And I asked the staff, I said, Let, can I pray for Morgan? And, uh, and as I prayed, I tried to listen to the Holy Spirit, what he would have me to say, were to pray in the Spirit. And, and, and what I sensed the Lord asked me to pray for Morgan, that, that, that he would be able to quickly disengage from the worries of his life. For he has three daughters and a wife. He has a new little baby and a lot of concerns and he's a firstborn and he bears on his shoulders the sense of responsibility for all these worries of the world. And so I, uh, the Lord just revealed that to me and I said, Lord, would you help Morgan to very quickly 
um, detach from his worries and just come into your presence in a beautiful way and minister to his heart and give him hope and excitement and joy as he anticipates the ministry moving forward and give him a vision and a call for what you want him to do next. Well, the end, that next day or morning, Angela texted me back and she said, Dad, thank you for praying for Morgan. He allowed me to read his journal for the day, and it was a beautiful day. And he said that, she said that the thing that m- was most profound to him, that, that was an indication of God working on his heart, he says, was how quickly he was able to disconnect from all the things that were worrying him and come into the Lord's presence to enjoy his day with the Lord. That is the intent of this verse, that we, be, we have to learn how to disconnect from the things that worry us and rob us and, and, and interfere with us. It's, Jesus expressed it in the, the parable of the sower, the sower that went out to cast seed and he, he threw seed on different kinds of soil. But the enemy came in and, and like the birds came down and grabbed the seed and robbed the seed of its fruitfulness or weeds grew and and uh, and. Uh, competed for the nutrition of the soil and the the seed didn't produce the fruitfulness of the harvest. And Jesus then, remember the disciples didn't understand the parable. They said, could you explain it to us? And Jesus then brought the interpretation. He said, these are like the worries, the thorns are like the worries of the world that choke the good seed of the gospel. It's the same principle that we have to recognize the important place of being in the presence of God when God is wooing us into his presence to find healing and, uh, and change and salvation for our hearts, but not allow and the enemy to interfere and bring distractions that would rob the seed from its fruitfulness. And so the, the bride is fearful of the possibility that her communion with her beloved is going to be broken here. And the enemy is... Uh, is diverting our love away from Jesus. And by the way, sin is always a disruption of love. And the Holy Spirit will withdraw His presence if we require Him to share our heart with sin. And so Satan is trying to lure us, divert our love away from Jesus Himself. The devil is the master distractor. He's like the Jim Carrey of distraction, like, look over here or look over here or here's this uh, this thing to to change your focus on to. The Bible urges to set your affections not on the things of the world, but set your affections upon Jesus Christ, which brings us to the final thought. And that is what is then is the though we've explained it a bit already, the devotional application of this verse to our lives. Well, it is this. Pay attention to the hunger of your soul and don't satisfy the hunger of your soul with anything less than God's perfect will for your life. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I believe that God gave us a soul that is hardwired for a particular reason, and that is to love the Lord. God created humankind in order to have people that he could have a relationship with because he's a God of love and he wants to pour out his love upon us. It's not a love that can exist in a vacuum, but he wants to love us and have relationship with us. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. 
Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. It's because our soul is hardwired. It's created for love. We are human beings that are created for affection and to worship something. And sin has twisted it and distorted it and distracted it and diverted it away from the original purpose and design for which we were hardwired. That's why Jesus said, what profit, what good is it for a man if he gains the whole world? Thinking, oh, that's what I set my affections on. That's where joy is centered in and comes from, but loses his soul. Once we have tasted and enjoyed the manifestations of heavenly love, we'll be weaned from these things. Uh, yesterday down at the, the Kenai, our men were gathered at this little place that we had spent the night along the Kenai River, this um, lodge there, and uh, we were having a morning devotional time sharing. And some of the men um, needed to leave quickly because they had some engagements last night. One fellow had to preach in a church here in town, and um, they wanted to uh, have some time to go to uh, Cooper Landing to take the ferry crossing across to catch some fish. And so they, the, the, we had to, we, the, the idea was to, to finish quickly so that you could go fishing, right, Luis? But we got into our devotional time with the Lord and share, sharing the goodness of the Lord. And so the, the question came up, do, do you, guys, you guys need to leave? You know, feel free to leave. No, we, we don't want to leave. The presence of the Lord is so good here that we don't want to go fishing now. You see, that, there's, a, there's a love that eclipses and surpasses the, the things of this world. And once we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, there is nothing else that compares to it. And so this scripture is warning us to set a boundary. Love needs a boundary to protect it from intrusions. One of the best stories to illustrate this is, um, you, you may remember from church history the, the name John and Charles Wesley, they wrote a lot of the hymns of the church, and John Wesley is the founder of, the, the, of Methodism, and uh, his f- mother and father's name was Samuel and Susanna Wesley, and Susanna and Samuel had 19 children. Um, nine of them died, so they had 10 children that lived, and some of them even had some health issues, and so you can imagine how difficult it was for Susanna, the mother, to find time alone with the Lord, to guard this relationship with the Lord, and she had apparently made this promise to the Lord. She said, Lord, I want to spend two hours a day alone with you. So that's quite a commitment for a mother that has 10 children, right? And so what, what she did, she set this boundary. She told her children, now children, whenever you see me sit down in a chair and pull the apron over my head, you know that I'm spending time alone with the Lord and do not disturb me during that precious moment. Well, I don't know what you need to do. You know, Jesus said that when you go into prayer, enter your closet and close the door. That's simply a statement that says, set a boundary, have a place, guard jealously, watch over, abide in my love, keep yourself in the love of God, as Jude says. So this is so vital, so important. And spiritual warfare is a fight against the things that interrupt our communion with Christ. And it warns us to be alert to love's intrusions, the things that break our communion with Him. So stay focused. Do you have a hard time staying focused? 
Are you easily distracted? Jesus told us to pray about this. He said, pray that you'll not enter into temptation or stay, you know, pray that you'll not be easily lured astray or uh, your affections against something else. And so we need to protect those precious moments, our quiet time, and not let them get broken by trivial intrusions. Some years ago, when we were pastoring in Eagle River, we had this wonderful weekend uh, conference at our church on the Holy Spirit. It was a wonderful time of the moving of God and the teaching and growing and learning. And that's the next Sunday morning, which was concluding that, we, we woke up. And how many of you ever noticed that one of the prime times when the daughters of Jerusalem come in to bring a distraction of the love of Christ is Sunday mornings? Sunday mornings, the time when you're getting ready to get up and go to church is the time where the enemy will, will you know, bring this in or bring that in to interfere with your love. So you come to, come to church kind of feeling like, you know, rotten, right? So that Sunday morning, Frankie and I had, had some words, had, had some words together, and I felt really bad about it. And I was praying about it, and I was telling the Lord I, I was sorry, and I didn't want anything to grieve Him or interfere with the sense and the awareness of the preciousness of His presence in my life. And, and I said, Lord, I'm just sorry for that. And as I was praying that prayer, and we're, we're getting ready, putting on our coat and boots and heading out the door, the Lord whispered to me, says, I want you to kiss her. You know, if, if, if you're sorry about it, then give her a kiss. Tell her you're sorry. You know, that's, that's a kind of a no-brainer. So I, I took her face in my hands, and I planted a big one on that lip. And, and, and Frankie's response was, hmm, big smile, huh. And she said, linger there. Or headed to church, you know, I've got, I've got a job to do. She says, linger there. She, she was enjoying the preciousness of that moment. And as soon as she said those words, I, matter of fact, I think it was this message I was going to preach that morning. It's like, that's, that's what I'm preaching on. There's a, there's a perfect picture of what we're talking about. The Lord wants us to, to linger there. So the message this morning is linger there. Linger. There's no better place. Matter of fact, I was thinking about this during the, the beginning of the second service. I don't remember what our disagreement was that morning. Do you, honey? I don't. But do you remember that kiss? <laughs> you know, we don't remember all the trivial distractions the enemy wants to bring in our life, but we will remember those precious times we've had with the Lord, those high points of Christian experience. And so the warning from the Song of Solomon is, I adjure you, promise me, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you'll not interfere, you'll not disturb the king when he is wooing us into relationship with him. I don't know how you want to or need to apply that to your life this morning, but I do know this, that we live in a world of so many distractions. There's so many things that will distract us these days. And we need to set boundaries and set guards and, and exercise a discipline in our, in our in a schedule to, to make sure we can carve out time to be alone with the Lord. So men... Go out and buy one of those aprons that Susanna Wesley had, you know. <laughs> Do something in order to guard our time with the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message this morning. And I pray that you'll teach us how to linger there, to linger in your presence, to be aware, to be conscious, to be un un 
on just vigilant, Lord, to recognize the, the move of, of the Holy Spirit in our life when he's calling us to go deeper with you. Even those moments during the day, Lord, help us to abide every day in an awareness of how much you love us and to walk in the enjoyment in the communion of that relationship with you. We just thank you, Lord. I pray and give you permission today to, uh, to call us into a deeper place with you that we'll find the purpose for which we live is only fulfilled in a relationship with you. As St. Augustine said, my heart is restless until I find my rest in thee. Our hearts are restless, Lord. We're hardwired to be creatures who want to love and set our affection on things and worship things. But the only thing that satisfies is our relationship with you, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you for being our Savior and the lover of our soul today.